What are the puzzles in front of us? What are we looking at? And how do we come up with the opportunities and the solutions to help more people? And I firmly believe your success is in proportion to the number of people you help. Mm. And so to me, um, the pivot happened when I grasped that reality and started to say, and it can pay me something. And so I think as a woman in business, I always did things for the right reasons. And I still believe I do that. But what I noticed was I had counterparts who were either men or more successful females that would be out in the world and they seemed to have both. Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Sue Hawks helps CEOs and their leadership teams succeed. As a best-selling author, award-winning leader, expert entrepreneur operating systems implementer, women's president organization chapter chair, and globally recognized award-winning seminar leader, Sue brings over 30 years of business experience to her clients. As CEO of YES, Sue has designed and delivered dynamic transformational programs for thousands of people. Her most recent book, Chasing Perfection, Shatter the Illusion, Minimize Self-Doubt and Maximize Success is available now. Sue is also a frequent contributor to publications including Forbes, Entrepreneur, Fortune, Fast Company, Business Insider, Thrive Global, and the New York Daily News. Her passion is to help people design and live successful, fulfilling lives through powerful leadership, effective communication, no-nonsense coaching, and healthy teamwork. So welcome, Sue Hawks. It's an absolute honor and privilege to have you here. And there are so many different ways that I could kind of begin Um, the introduction and kind of get you to welcome um, yourself into the podcast. But you know where I really want to begin? I was looking at your LinkedIn profile today um, in preparation. I know, I know when people say that to me, I kind of go into a little bit of a panic. (laughs) And I noticed you studied graphic design and studio arts and graphic design. And I was just wondering, how do you go from there to the work that you're doing now in entrepreneurship and supporting (laughs) growth in entrepreneurs? You know, that's such a great question. Um, Most people don't even know that about me, Saida, even though it is on that profile way back in the depths of college. You know, I am a fairly balanced left and right brained person, which is not something lots of 
I've met, I've not met a lot of people who do both. Mm -hmm. So I had natural artistic ability that guided me to ultimately choosing that. But when I was in high school and growing up, I thought I'd be a doctor. And I was either going to be a pathologist because I got fascinated with when people died, how it happened, you know, how you could unlock what disease did or how to, you know, kind of forensically figure out what the mystery was. And I still watch shows like Forensic Files and CSI because I have a morbid sense about that. But things unfolded and I had opportunities to paint some murals um, in the city of Minneapolis for different occasions like the Minnesota Twins, our baseball team, um, winning the World Series. And so I was commissioned to do a mural for that while I was in college. I made zero dollars hardly. But it was this opportunity where things kept unfolding like that. I was doing people's nurseries. So the other um, passion I had was potentially being a pediatrician because I really love children. Um, and it kept unfolding to like do art. And so as we do in life or as people like me do, I, I can try and force and do the things that I think I'm supposed to do or I can watch what's unfolding. And I literally just followed the path to art. And it was a blast in college, but then I got done with college and I started going, this business thing is interesting. And I fell into, and I literally, my whole life has been a series of things unfolding. And so it unfolded into going into the training world and working in transformational training in the human potential movement and moved from general public into business. And business fascinates me. So, you know, like that forensic sort of view on things as it unpacks I sort of follow along I'd love to tell you it was a grand master plan it never ever was well should I tell you my relationship with graphic design yes so when I was 15 I thought I was going to become a graphic design artist I didn't know what I was going to do and so when you're at school here, you kind of get to do one or two weeks of work experience. And I went to a graphic design um, place. Uh, week one was brilliant. Week two, I was desperate for Friday to come. <laughs> <laughs> End of graphic design career. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny because I ended up training as an architect. I knew that I wanted to do something creative, but I just kind of thought, you know, if, if this is the reality of the job. And I honestly, I just think it was that particular studio that I went to and the experience that I had. And now work experience is so much better. But it's fascinating, isn't it, how something little can happen and it can just completely pivot you and, and move the direction of your life. And that was graphic design. There's been other things that have happened where it's been just as, in fact, maybe even more eventful. You know, so I I would love to know what has been the biggest kind of pivot or shift that has taken place in your journey as an entrepreneur. Mm. I think the biggest pivot um, came when I met my husband. And again, I never think it's one thing. I, I don't think it's ever one thing. It's all these things that lead to it. But just like we're talking about, like, how did you start in this same area where we both go, oh, design, yeah, graphic design. But it really is solving puzzles. And to me, that's business. It's 
what are the puzzles in front of us? What are we looking at? And how do we come up with the opportunities and the solutions to help more people? And I firmly believe your success is in proportion to the number of people you help. Mm. And so to me, um, the pivot happened when I grasped that reality and started to say, and it can pay me something. And so I think as a woman in business, I always did things for the right reasons. And I still believe I do that. But what I noticed was I had counterparts who were either men or more successful females that would be out in the world and they seemed to have both. Mm. And I remember when I met my husband, who's a very successful person in his own right, you know, he said to me, and this is a funny story, he said, you never have to work again if you don't want to, thinking he was handing me this wonderful gift when we got engaged. And I got so angry, Saida, it was one of the most pivotal points in my life. And he didn't know I was angry. So I, we, we were living in separate households and dating at the time. And I went home and I had a massive undoing, meaning I was up all night struggling with why my ego was so wrapped up in this man who I knew sincerely was saying like, I'm giving you a ticket to freedom, do whatever you want. And what I heard was, I'll never be independent again. You want me to live off of you. I'm going to be a kept woman. I mean, any, any negative thing you could put to that was somewhere packed deep in my psyche that I was unaware of. But all my pride and independence was at stake. So the next day we got together and I said to him, I need, cause I, I did my own coaching on this one cause it was pretty massive. And that moment in time was where I went, oh my God, I finally have a partner. I mean, a true partner in life who says like, I've got your back no matter what. And it's met inside in my interior with how dare you, you know, oh. like how can you insult me with that way? And so what I, reasoned myself to by the time I unpacked the 15,000 layers of whatever's in there. I told him how grateful I was for this gift and for this, um, what became very big confrontation for me with myself, because I said, I've always, since the day I was, that I can remember when I was young, thought I had to do it on my own, that I had this fierce independence and that by him suggesting that I knew the real root of what he was offering, but my ego met it so harshly that I had to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And the gift was it made me more intentional and more sufficient and far more committed to being equal or greater than him in monetary success, which was also one of those things I was looking at, and everything else because I had permission. Mm. But I had to get to permission out of it. But it, it came across as a big, huge negative where I think a, a number of people I've told that story to have been like, wow, I wish someone would say that to me. And I'm going, oh, antithesis, you know, and I shouldn't have responded that way if I was logical, but I wasn't. Mm. But it's really interesting because I think you have to give permission to yourself, you know, and in that that journey that you've described, it really is about kind of like, you know, you, you essentially are being offered everything that you could ever want on a plate. And you're saying, well, 
but I haven't worked for it. You know? Yes. And, and, and I think that's the thing that I can really, really relate to. I mean, my funny story that if you'll allow me to share is this one. <laughs> I remember I messaged my husband at 8 a.m. in the morning of the day we were supposed to get married and said to him, um, are you getting ready? Because if you're not, then at least I'll know. Right. And I just and and of course he got wow. ready and we got married and stuff, right? And and I'd never I think it was because I'd never put myself in a position of vulnerability like that, where I was part of potentially having a man let me down. My my parents split up when I was seven. And so, you know, it was mm-hmm. me, I've only got three sisters and my mum. And so we never had that kind of like strong um, male figure. And so all of a sudden I was about to let somebody into my life. And as I've, because I've had to do the work to unpack that afterwards, right? Yeah. And as I've done it, I realized it's because really it's, it is, it's the giving yourself to have the permission to have the thing that you want and then going all in and just trusting that actually it is going to be okay. Yeah. And I think what you just said, trusting that it is going to be okay is what feels scary, right? It's foreign. It's not my lived experience to this moment. So it can't be good. Mm. (laughs) Like, how do you trust that? I don't have any evidence that says this is how partners behave. So why would I believe it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for my advice for anyone that's listening in and thinking, well, I could never do that, is some of the answer for me actually is about having therapy. Some of it is having coaching. You've got to do the work. You need to understand yourself because when you do that, then you kind of, um, you know, some people call it container, some call it boundaries and things, but you know what works for you. And I think you're more willing to say no. And that is a really nice little segue to your whole concept of say yes. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) What are we, what are we going to disagree about here? (laughs) So tell me more about, you know, why you called your business say yes. You know, um, it's it's called YES, Y-E-S-S, all capital letters with an exclamation point. And I think it's been my approach to life. And I think anyone who knows me well would say I'm one of those people who probably says yes to well too many things because they all sound interesting, exciting, new, different. And I want to go all in. And so it's more an expression of that. But literally, I think naming your business is one of the hardest things anyone does because you're trying to put a concept to a word or a logo or that combination from the graphic design place again. And it's it's simple, but it's not easy. And like so many things, I was having a conversation, a dialogue with a trusted friend, and I was frustrated because... I didn't have a good business name and I didn't want it to be Sue Hawkson Associates because that felt like a cop-out, even though plenty of people have great businesses named after themselves. And he said, well, what are the words you love? And it was this combination of extraordinary success strategies, which is so mouthy and so wordy. And I was like, oh, it's too complex. And he goes, well, your name is Sue, so you could do a big capital S because it's E-S-S, 
you know, and it'd be like, S, and I'm going, oh, that feels so self-centered and awful. And it's wordy. Um, but I was standing in line to pick up food, kid you not, in a takeout line. And I all of a sudden, when he said S, I went, well, if it had a Y in the beginning, like all good things start with yes. And it was that simple where I went, oh, if all good things start with yes, we just made it your extraordinary success strategy. So that's the entire like incorporated name. But we go by yes. And it really, I do believe all great things start by emphatically saying yes um, and putting your whole self in. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the piece that you shared about business names, I mean, honestly, you have no <laughs> idea the struggle that I've been through. And then when I finally kind of decided to to change the name of my business and call it Results Partners, it just, it made so much sense. Right? And I'm like, why did that thing not download for me all those years before? But it can't. I think it's a journey to try and encapsulate all that you are with what you're doing. And our identities are so woven in there. Mm. Like you don't want to leave anything on the table. You don't want to oversimplify it. You don't want it to sound pretentious. All, all the things we as human beings are doing in all of this, we pack all this meaning that doesn't ever necessarily get unpacked by anybody else, but it matters mm. so much to us. It does because I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I view my my business and my work as just like another child. You know, I, I try and nurture it and care for it in the same way. Well, it's a, an extension of you, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody that interfaces with you, Saida, gets your heart and your full attention and your brain and your commitment and all the tools and education and skill you have. And so that name in a second has to convey all that. I mean, that's that's a big deal. Mm, absolutely. And I also agree with you about the thing of not calling your business after your own name. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I kind of did that for a while and there was just something about it that just felt so disingenuous and, and maybe even a wee bit egotistical. You know? yeah. so. And also kind of the default position. That's what I was thinking is like when you don't want to put the effort in because it gets frustrating while you're trying to kick it around. It's kind of like, well, just call it my name, mm. um, which doesn't, at least for me, and it sounds like for you, didn't fully yeah, land. Yeah. And, and I think there's also something about the legacy that you create. Because for me, if you if your business is something that you can hand over to somebody else, you approach it differently. And, and I know your daughter works with you and I think, you know, I, I've met Ali and she's just such a wonderful human being. And, and to Thank even you. to be able to have that is actually such a gift. But I think it, it, it means you approach your business differently, right? You do. And I think, you know, I have always been a proponent of thinking about whether you have that in mind initially or not. It's the, the coveyism, you know, how, what's the end? If you know what the end of your business is, you work backward. And then those yeses and nos do become easier to navigate. Because if my intention is there's a legacy for her to continue, it can't be based on me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be on some teachings and learnings I might do because I'm a service provider. But how do we make it bigger than that and more inclusive than that? And 
beyond that. So you, you do, you make choices and it's harder in some ways, but it's simplified in what you say yes and no to if there's an end game. Absolutely. So what's the hardest thing that you've ever said no to? Boy, that's a good question, Saida. Um, I have had a few opportunities recently to step in and lead companies that people have approached me and said, hey, would you take this seriously and consider this? And I think knowing in my heart that it isn't my highest and best use has been very powerful and very difficult, but not the hardest ones. I think the hardest ones, truthfully, if I really, really tell you the way I see it, are ones where I would put myself first. Mm. It's the things where I go, I know this is right for me, and I'm not sure how it's going to be perceived or how it's going to be received or what people will think. Um, and I'm not saying it from, a, oh, the world would judge this as a bad thing. It's stuff where, where truthfully the best thing is for me to say, you know what? No, this is what I need right now, even though all these other things would look better. Mm. And I, what you've just shared is so immensely powerful because I think when you prioritize yourself, actually what you're also doing is prioritizing the people that you care for because you show up differently. You know? I think that's accurate. I would turn the question on you and say, what's, what for you has it been? Because I think saying no for those of us, I mean, for God's sakes, my name is called, yeah, the business name is yes. You know, it's something I'll be practicing my entire life, but I would ask you the same thing because I think many people, and I will speak mainly to females, it's been more pervasively female to me, gender-wise, mm. um, struggle with that. Mm. I think in the past I've been more inclined to say yes to things for other people. Um, and if I can fit it in, then I might put myself under pressure and say yes. But what's really interesting for, in my own personal journey is that in the last few months, I've just got so much clarity on the thing that I want to do and the work that is important to me that I found it very easy to say no. But also there is this thing about FOMO, right? Like the fear of missing out. Yeah. And so... How do you say no to something that you really want to do, but you just know does not fit in with your agenda and where you need to be in the next month or in the next quarter? And I think that that is where I personally experience the biggest struggle because every now and then that question comes in of, did I say no for the right reason? And I know I did, but it's just that little kind of, tiny bit and I actually think that's a really good thing because it keeps me on my toes and it means that I've not kind of been flippant in the saying no um I've kind of thought it through and and kind of I can present an argument for why that's just not the right time for me at the moment and there's a couple of things 
they're in my email right now that I'm going to have to say no to. (laughs) But, you know, if it doesn't fit in with the agenda that is presented with you now, here's here's a really interesting one. And I'd love your thoughts on this. If I say yes to those things, they'll derail me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really dangerous. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how bad this is for me. I'm so relating to everything you're saying because this has been a lifelong challenge for me. Again, remember what my business is called. And I had to have someone point that out to me. And I went, this is a real thing. And I literally had to create an exercise that I put in my book where for every yes, what am I saying no to in addition to that initial? Because, you know, it's like saying, oh, I'll host a holiday meal. Well, it's not one yes. There's 15 or 20 or 30 yeses inside that. You're going to pick up your home and you're going to have to grocery shop and you're going to have to plan a meal and you're going to decorate your home or you're going to create the guest list or all these things that come with it plus all your preconceived notions. And so I started saying, what does this one, and I had to back up my bus literally to say, what when I say yes to this, what else am I saying yes to? But what else am I saying no to? Which is what you're at least in this moment, highlighting for me where it's like when I could look at that list, it became much easier to go like, I have done my due diligence. I did consider this. And instead of defaulting, like my default position, I don't know what yours is, but my default is, well, then I won't do self-care. I won't sleep or I won't exercise or I won't spend time with friends. It's all the things that then I'm at some level resentful of not having But it's so unconscious that when it happens, I'm a crab, but I don't know that I'm crabby because I'm negating all these things voluntarily. And it's no one did that. I did. Mm -hmm. And I had to do the same thing with the counter argument. So if I say no to this, it isn't just the antithesis. Sometimes it's if I say no to this, what else am I saying yes to? And all of a sudden you can start to see, oh, it's allowing the potentiality of X, Y, and Z. And it's saying no to these other things, meaning the self-care is there. Now, what am I giving up? What am I gaining? And I had to do that for literally a year in my life. And just on big things, I started and then more granular as I went. Because I I wasn't, wasn't and am not terrifically practiced. I'm way better than I used to be, but still my default position is that sounds exciting. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Why can't I not just say yes? Why can't I work it out? Why can't I delegate something else? Why, 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 why? And then all of a sudden you're just, I, I mean, what happens for me is that I kind of like then go into this mode where I'm desperate to say yes, but I still know the answer is no. That's profound. And it's really, really hard. And I think actually, I suppose the thing that helps me through that space is then unpacking it with somebody who I know has got my back so much that they're going to give me the hard message that I need to hear. And sometimes that's my husband. Sometimes it's a good friend. Sometimes actually it's a coach who has no idea about me or my life but you need to have people who will tell you the uncomfortable truth and I think if you don't have enough of them in your life that's probably part of the reason why 
people don't make good decisions. Amen. Hallelujah. Preach. That is, find those people to any of your listeners. If you don't have those go-to people, you need them. You got to start seeking some out. Mm. Go and, and yeah, 100%. That's probably the most important job of the day, I would say. <laughs> I'm allowed to. Yeah, one of them for sure. Mm. So you are so busy and you do so many things. That's certainly how I see and incredibly prolific. So how do you organize your time, you know, and, and how do you manage your schedule? You know, thank you for asking. I am an efficiency crazy person. So my time is in blocks and I work on Dan Sullivan's method from Strategic Coach where I have focus free and buffer days, which anyone can go Google and look up. So I won't go into that. Um, but during my days, during the week, there are chunks of time. Like our time together is creative work. And so there are blocks of time. And I have, um, I spent 90 days, I made a rock in EOS terms, if you know, 98, 90 day priorities, just saying, what are the things I need to contribute to what I want to get the results for my business and for how I want to be? So there's writing time, there's podcasting time. There's designing time, which I used to negate because that actually took more time than I ever gave it credit for. I always accounted for, oh, I'm giving this talk or, oh, I'm leading that workshop or, oh, I'll be in this workshop as a student. But I didn't do the, how long does it take you to get ready for that? And mm -hmm. how much thinking time do you need? And so that thinking time has become one of the most necessary things. I have time that I call clarity break, where it's every week getting time to think, how can I be better? How can my business be better? What could I do differently? Where are the things I'm not paying attention to? Um, Self-care practices, dedicated time every day. Um, and then packing that in, in a way where my, my plan is to help people figure this stuff out, because I think as we travel in life, we don't reassess often enough. So what I do now is vastly different than when my kids were little, or when I was, a, you know, single mom, or when I was a solopreneur versus having a company. And so how you reassess that and realign it has to be a consistent practice as often or as seldom as needed. And that sounds really vague, but we take our car in for maintenance. We don't take our activities and our psyche in for those kinds of things. And so for me, it's a very disciplined, um, rigorous kind of approach, but not everybody wants that. Yeah, but I, I think there is something about the kind of discipline that you're describing that creates a sense of freedom. So um, in, in my book, Results, the Art and Science of Getting It Done, I advocate a 90-day cycle. And I kind of say to people, actually, if you want to do it in 60 days, you can as well. But there is just something special about the three months. And, you know, it's long enough for you to be able to kind of make a couple of mistakes and, and learn from them and, and catch up. But it's also short enough for you to kind of feel and, and this is a hard word. I know some people don't like it, but there is 
an element of how it does move you forward. But you need to feel some pressure. You need to know that there are deadlines there because if there are no deadlines, it's not going to happen, right? Right. At all. (laughs) At all. Yeah. So I would I would love to know because the the EOS system for people who haven't heard of it before is called the Entrepreneur's Operating System, right? Yep, Entrepreneurial Operating System. And and I would love you just to kind of like if you can give us a crash course in 5 minutes on Whoa. what it is. <laughs> so, it's a way of looking at your business to help you run a better business. It does two things. It helps you give give you six key components out of which to see your business, gain more control, and in the name, it tells you what it is. It's an operating system. So in the same way that iOS or Intel runs your computer and you never think about it, once you get that in place in your business, it's an operating system to help you do what you do better. So it's the the six key components, which are vision, people, data, solving issues, having processes, and getting traction, accountability, discipline, and focus. And that's really the key elements, but it's a lens out of which you see things and solve things. Mm. I love the simplicity of that and just the way that you describe all six. And so I know there is a book, I know, and we're going to come on and speak about your book as well. And there's so many different ways that you can access them, the, the EOS system. We'll put some links into the show notes. But actually, even just what you've described in less than a minute, you could put that on a blank piece of paper and start thinking about, you know, what is your vision, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds as if it's a, a simple thing to incorporate into your business, but then there's all the complexities that go underneath all of that, right? Yeah, simple is not easy, right? And yeah. so coming back to your book is a perfect dovetail because that 90-day world is a psychological fact. It's not mm-hmm. just long enough, short enough. I mean, you made it sound so graceful. I would tell you there's a ton of psychology behind why 90 days is the right period of time and that the pressure you described, and I would, I would agree wholeheartedly, I think minus deadlines, the majority of us, let things languish. And we see this in our world all over the place. But that being said, whether it's your business, your life, or for you as a leader, what's the outcome you're seeking? And then you design backward from there because that tells you how much or how little um, structure to apply because I could not, I want to highlight what you said, which is I say two different phrases all the time. Structure frees creativity, and structure creates freedom. Either way, that that three-word combination of creativity, freedom, and structure, if you don't have it, you will not be able to access that freedom or that creativity. And too many people say, ugh, I don't want to live like that. And it's like nothing worthwhile comes from... um, Acts comes by accident. It mm. comes with hard work. Mm. And, and I would also kind of say that you don't get the results that you're looking for. So I'm not an advocate for hustle, hustle, hustle. But I'll tell you something. I remember the day that I decided that I wanted to get married. And this is after kind of like 11 years of the conversation, you know, you should get married. And all of these people that I was introduced to, 
I remember the day, I remember kind of like in the back of my mind, I created a plan. Um, two months later, I, well, I'd met various people, but two months later, I met my husband. A month after that, we kind of had had all those conversations that we needed to do to work out, yeah, okay, this has potential and it could work. And I think two months after that, we were married. So we're talking about less than three months, and that's like 20 years ago. How does that happen? It happens with all of those things that you're describing, but also a willingness to then do the work. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like you look at people and you can be like, wow, I wish my life was like Saida's. I wish I could have her wisdom and everything's been so easy for her. Right? No, (laughs) I wish it had been easy. (laughs) Right. But it's anyone that I know who is successful in whatever your definition of that word is, whether that's they take great care of themselves. They're an incredible parent. They're an exemplary friend. They're a successful business person. They have a huge bank account. They have material goods you want. I don't care what domain you put it in. That person worked mm-hmm. and they were intentional and they did things with discipline or it wouldn't be there. It doesn't just land in your lap. And I think I agree with you. It doesn't always happen with hustle, 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 but there's a degree to which you have to have intentionality and the actions behind it. Because when those align, that's when it can happen in three months for you and your husband. You had to have met these other people and considered, nope, not you either. Nope, not you either. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, and then he fell from the sky. He swept me off on his white horse and we ran down the beach. I'm going to have to mute myself for the amount of love. <laughs> like, you know. And the, the big challenge actually about that one, we'll kind of lean into this for another second or two, is that that is how it's presented, isn't it? And right. I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm talking about everything like, you know, um, the overnight success. Like, And yeah, actually, they've been doing work in the background for 10, 20, 30 years. And all of a sudden, just because you've seen them and they've got two million followers or, you know, they've got multi-million pound business, you just think that somehow that happened with a small amount of work. In the same way my friend's children's grew up overnight, but mine took 28 years, right? (laughs) It's, oh, I wasn't paying attention to that, and suddenly you have it, so it must have been easy because I didn't see the challenges, the struggles, the setbacks, the fun, the difficulties, the, oh, I almost quit how many times? Mm. Mm. I would love to know, how do you decide to say yes to a project? So if someone comes to you and they've kind of like got something that they would love to, you to work on, what are the, what's the kind of decision-making process that you go through to know that that is the right thing for you, Sue Hawks? Boy, that's a, a loaded question. I think it's been uh, 50-50, and this is going to sound airy-fairy after all of the things we just said. There's a part of me that has a very structured life, right? That's how I produce the results I have. So that gets me what I've got, and I know how to do that. 
So I have certain days, like I have a number of days allocated to leading EOS. I have a number of days allocated to speaking. I have a number of days allocated to working on our internet business. And that's the formula I have. Now, those can shift around based on what reality presents. Like last year, there were no speaking dates, not the same way. And then they morphed a bit. And then by this year, things changed and they kicked back in in all kinds of ways. So there's that. But then there's this intuitive gut, oh, Saida calls you and says, hey, I think there could be a thing. And you go, oh, I kind of like Saida and this could be interesting but I don't have my time allocated there. But I also, in my gut, and this is where I really talk about intuition a ton, is you just know at some level that is not logical, that doesn't fit in the formula, that negates everything we just talked about, that it's like, dang, I got to pursue this and at least have the conversations. I'm not going to say a full yes, but I'm not going to say no. And I think that's where that sweetness and serendipity in life lies, because I have to be willing to abandon that or the next thing can't show up. And I will, I will very openly and humbly say the best things that have happened have not been on my structured plan. They hit me from a, you know, in my periphery vision and it's sort of like, well, let's just let that do what it does and not, we're sort of in the flow of it and between us it emerges until it's something that we can't contain and it actually is its own life. So I don't know if that made sense, but it's, it's both parts of those. I absolutely love that as an answer because you're, it kind of reminds me of what Mo McKenna says in terms of plan tight, hang loose, but from a completely different way. And it's like saying, well, you, you've, you, you know what it is that you want to, to do and what you want to achieve. And if an opportunity comes and it's interesting enough, then maybe... And it's that piece of finding out a little bit more before you've got enough information to be able to make the decision. And the other thing that I heard was that because you're working for yourself and because you are in charge of your own schedule and your agenda, actually, it's easy to reprioritize if something comes up that you really, really want to do. I, I wouldn't use the word easy, Saida. <laughs> But I would say I have the flexibility to move things. Absolutely. Because that's the, that's part of the allure of what you and I do, you know, where it's like, you know what, my gut just says, if the world doesn't understand, that's okay. Because mm -hmm. I don't take my commitments lightly. I wouldn't be, no one you would talk to who knows me well would be like, oh, she just changes her mind. It would be, man, this must be important because you are making a directional change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, it's a tightrope. We're balancing the, I need to be the kind of person that you would be attracted to as some kind of opportunity because I'm living in a disciplined um, and, and productive, successful way from your eyes. And I have the fluidity mm. that I can move if the music changes on the dance floor. Yeah. And 
what is really kind of like powerful for me about that is just the idea that you you've got the clarity but it, it hold on it's kind of like saying you know what I want to go to Florence and then all of a sudden you realize that Rome is on the way and you can take a detour and you you know it, whether you get to Florence or not kind of like is not necessarily part of the the immediate agenda but you're going somewhere really pleasant anyway <laughs> right Right. And I didn't know until I got to Italy. Right. Mm. I did not know till I set foot on the soil that I could be seduced. And I think it is a seduction in the best sort of way where it's like something in me has been awakened and I need to pay attention. Mm. And that's where I think if we don't own and create space so that we have space to create, we can't tap into that intuition where you just know like there's something here for me. It may not be the end result of what we're even talking about, but there's something here for me. Mm. What advice do you have to people um, for how they can tap into intuition? Because I think that's something that's really important, but also some may say it's quite hard to do. I think the people who would say the latter, Saida, and I would welcome your input, um, they just don't trust it. Because I think your intuition whispers, it doesn't shout. What I've known about my own is often when I finally listen, because sometimes I, my ego and my life and my busyness are more stubborn than my intuition is loud. And I'll be like, oh, I knew that. You know, and you know it at a knowingness that's deep and true, where it's like, I knew that. And I didn't act when I could have because mm -hmm. something else interrupted it. But to tune into it, the things that have worked for me, number one, building space in my calendar, intentional space to think, to learn, to be inspired. Where does that happen for me? Near water, out in nature, on a bicycle, in a walk. Sometimes I need to read something first and sit with it. Sometimes I need nothing more going in because I'm full. And it's more having a piece of paper in front of me and just, you know, outpouring and not editing. Sometimes it's just staring at things like we have hummingbird feeders and I watch hummingbirds and there's just something about these little beings that opens up, you know, something else, but it often is nature and space. And it's always for me isolated, meaning I'm not with people when my intuition hits for the most part. If it's to connect people or that some things go together, that's always with people. But oftentimes, just like hearing what those messages are, I have to be still inside, still enough to hear the whisper because it never shouts. Mm -hmm. That's my experience with it. And that stillness is not natural for me. I am a hyperactive being. Yeah, you know, what I really love about what you've just said there, Sue, is that you you need to be by yourself in order to tap into the intuition. Because I, I think for me personally, people, I mean, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm very comfortable as an introvert, but I love speaking to people, you know, and that's part of the reason why I'm doing this. Um, <laughs> 
but at the same time, I can, my kind of version of not being still is just being busy and just having so much to do. But I love the way that you describe that piece about being by yourself in order to be able to listen to the intuition. Because for me, when I'm when I'm particularly busy or I'm reading a lot to try and kind of, you know, uh, write something or create something, I need that space, which is actually just kind of like empty. So I don't even listen to anything when I'm going for a walk or I'm outside. And I find that the, I have to have a notebook with me, though. That's the one thing, <laughs> because that's when the best downloads come. Amen. You know? I, um, I carry my little remarkable tablet everywhere. Um, yeah. So I agree. I think I think in stillness come answers, but get, reaching stillness is something I'm going to say as an American is not something that we necessarily promote or encourage in our culture. It's the same over here. I mean, everyone's supposed to be busy or they're supposed to be listening to something. Or, and I think that's probably why so many people struggle with the concept of meditation or um, doing heart lock-ins or just pausing for a moment. And, and I say all of that, but I remember, gosh, it must now be about 15 years ago when I was doing my master's in applied positive psychology. One of the, the interventions I decided to do was an eight week mindfulness based stress relief program. And in there, one of the things I learned was how to do a one minute meditation. And can you imagine Sayada traveling to work on a jam packed tube? So that's that's like our train yeah. where yeah. everyone is full of sardines, you know, like you're, you're having to avoid smelling somebody else's armpit. <laughs> you're not painting and a very nice picture. It really is not fun. And um, but then you can close your eyes and despite all of that stuff going on, you're able to center yourself because you've got the practice of a 60 second meditation and simply all it involves is breathing in and out really slowly so that you take between five and 12 breaths within that one minute. You should probably do that. Mm. Wouldn't that be, I think if you're listening, that might be something we all need just because you just said it. What do you think? Why not? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, lead us through, please, Saida. I need to get my timer. So, <laughs> actually, no, you know what? I, I wouldn't use my timer in the tube, so why would I do it now? So literally That's what something. I'm going to say is just close your eyes. Um, if you're driving, please don't close your eyes. <laughs> but Or but anything if, else requiring your eyes. Yeah, absolutely. But um, if you're able to, you know, feet on the floor, close your eyes, I would say, because we're certainly you and I are able to put your hand on your heart and just breathe in and out slowly for, let's say, eight breaths.
And then when you've finished, you can just slowly open your eyes and come back into the room. Doesn't that just kind of create such a, a different type of energy? Entirely. Mm. Entirely. And make sure your editors don't cut it out. <laughs> They'll go, there's nothing happening right there. Um, but there's so much happening. And and again, what a powerful thing for everyone listening. You know, my strong encouragement is that you do that exercise if you haven't, but when just to create that space, like that just shifts everything, like you're grounded a different way and it's one minute-ish, mm. right? Mm. And that that's the thing that I think for me is just so powerful about something like that because we've spoken a lot today about, you know, being busy and being productive and, and being active and, and how is it that we find kind of pockets of rest and things. But when you have got a lot to do on your agenda, it is really, really important to fit in things like this, you know. And so my own practice for when I'm recording a podcast is I come in, I sit at my desk kind of maybe 15, 20 minutes beforehand. I watch or check some of my guests' information so that I'm actually, it's as if I've invited them into my room before they're even there. And then I join the meeting and I just really, honestly, I just sit in silence for a minute or two, just waiting for my guests to come. Because I think, I, you know, I mean, gosh, I, I don't know why I'm sharing this, but I think it, it, it hopefully just gives a little bit of an insight to people about how they prepare for the arrival of um, others into meetings, into their homes, wherever. And... And for me, there's just something really important about making sure that I'm ready for my guest, even if it's a Zoom meeting. That's beautiful. I mean, really, truly like setting the space to invite people in and include them before they ever walked in. Yeah. And that is not taught anywhere when I've been researching how to do a podcast, right? Well... But thank goodness you're teaching us. Oh, thank you. Right? Yeah. And it's just, it's really interesting because here's the other thing that's coming out of that. And I think, you know, from this will come a question is just that piece about you've got to do you. You have to work out your own way of doing things. So when I decided to do a podcast, I read all of this stuff. I was going to do all of these courses and they were just, I had such a sense of resistance towards what they were teaching me. In the end, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to follow my instinct, follow my gut, my intuition, and just do it the way that I want to. And if it works out, awesome. If it doesn't, we all still had a huge amount of fun. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's that's a perfect example of you had to be still enough to know that the experts can tell you things. And these are people who have accomplishments in a direction you want to go and you still go, it's not for me. And that's okay. So that leads me to ask you, because I, I think you have a real kind of humble sense of confidence. Where does that come from? I think a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I think, I think honestly, I mean, I have the great privilege like you do, Sayada 
to be in people's back pockets, to hear their vulnerabilities, their challenges, the places they screw up. And it's a lot of people in, you know, trusted leadership spaces. So Mm -hmm. I don't take that lightly. And I also am humbled by, I haven't been a perfect mom or human or wife or sister or daughter or friend. And I'm constantly hearing whether directly or indirectly ways to improve. And I think if that ever stops, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very humbling to be alive. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very humbling to look in the mirror and say, I have work to do. And yet I like who I am because it's more aligned with the who I intend to be than the one I think I should be. And I think that comes with age and mistakes and pain and growth. And so it's, you know, it's that, again, it's always this tightrope you present such rich questions where it's like confidence and humility to me are a perfect pair. And I'm, I'm grateful to even hear that because confidence to me is knowing I'm being the me I'm supposed to be as perfectly and as perfectly imperfect as that is, and the humility to know that tomorrow I can still get better, and today I'm working on it. So when I wake up tomorrow, I can say, all right, the lumps were here, the winds were here, let's let the universe keep guiding us and sharpening that saw, because I don't know, I I have yet to wake up and be like, that's all there is, I'm awesome, we're good. I hope that never happens. I really Me do. Too. <laughs> I don't think it will. <laughs> no, I don't think it will either. But it's really interesting because the, the way that you've described that is is actually, it takes me to a conversation I was having with a friend of mine um, where they were looking at their life in their 20s through the lens of what they know now. And I just said, you can't do that. Like you're beating yourself up unnecessarily. And and when I look at my 20s, I honestly, I mean, I just did some really things that I regret. But it's wonderful to be able to look back at that now with the wisdom that one has and think, you know, those things happened. I probably would do them again, but I've learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of leads me to um, one of my final questions for you, which is, if 16-year-old Sue was meeting you today, what would she say to you? Hmm. Um, I wasn't as conscious at 16. <laughs> so I think probably she'd say something like, I'll have all the things you'll have. I just may not do it your way. Um. I think she'd say something like that because I think I would still have been like, you're doing all right. But I also at that time, I think would have been cocky enough or arrogant enough to be like, I'm going to do it my way. You think, you know, something I, I think I was immature enough and naive enough that there would have been kind of a backhanded compliment in there. I'd like to say I was better than that, but I don't think I was. Sarita. She sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 16, not now, hopefully. Right, I was right. 
Right. I mean, if I'm being honest, I could polish up a version, but I don't think it'd be honest. <laughs> no, I love that. And what's your favorite book? Oh, that's like saying my favorite song. Those are really hard questions because, you know, for what? For business, for life, um, for... Give me one of each, one for business, one for life. Um, I think for business, because of its impact in my own life and all the people I get to help, I would say traction because it's current and it's, I think it will go down as one of the greatest small business books ever. And my passion is there. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's relevant. That's an easier answer. I think, um, books that really anything Pema Chodron has written, um, living beautifully with uncertainty and change is one of my favorites. Um, I think as a man thinketh is, um, perennial. like these are the things that I go, I could reread them today and be like, have I ever read this book? I really needed to hear that, you know, and it's so dense and so simple that I think those really, um, they keep me very humble too. I really don't know very much, you know, that there are some great teachers that have been around for a lot longer than me and I got a lot more studying to do. <laughs> so those would be a couple. They're excellent. They really are. And, and, and one thing that I heard was like, my, my reflection is uh, the more that you know, the less you realize that you know, and it's like you you literally do feel like that drop in the ocean. You know, it's it's actually quite frightening. And liberating at yeah. the same time. Yeah. 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 What You just triggered a quote for me that I read yesterday, and I'm trying to think who said it. I think it was attributed to Gandhi, which I can't verify. But it was something like, if you are angry now, but you're a drop of the ocean and you're put into the ocean, you would realize you're not angry. Mm, that's so good. And I will check and then put the exact question. <laughs> and it's probably nothing just, like what I just said. <laughs> it just sounds so profound. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? Um, I am reading Lead Like Reagan, Ronald Reagan, because one of my clients gave it to me, and I would tell you it's a really good meat and potatoes of leadership book. So that one's in front of me, and I'm also reading with my book study group, which I have right here, My Grandmother's Hands, um, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Menachem. Um, which is just a beautiful book. So, you know, something kind of lefty and something kind of righty for my brain. Um, listening to anything from the 1980s that's musical. Um, I love music to let me go and have fun, and I will always be a product of the 80s. Um, British bands, very, very affectionate to British bands in particular. Depeche Mode and things like oh, that? Or? Yes, indeed. <laughs> New Order, Bronski Beat, let me go on. Um, you said reading, watching, watching the Olympics. The Oli I, I'm consumed by that. When the Olympics come, I want to watch it. And I have my own reactions about why women perform in next to no clothes and men wear clothes. But short of that, I love what people have done 
in pursuit of excellence mastery that moment in time because mm-hmm. that's a level of excellence I personally mentally aspire to but literally have not translated my life to and I just think that's a physical embodiment of everything we talked about today in so many ways mm. and I mean we could we could have another conversation about the whole thing to do with clothing and all of the and actually even mental health and all of these other things but no I kidding one thing really nice that happened in the Olympics, and I can't remember who it was for the life of me because so much has happened, but there was a race or, or sorry, I should say a event because I never know where <laughs> two people tied and they tied to the point. I where, jump. Like, yeah. Okay. And they were told, what do you want to do? And they said they would share the gold medal. And I just thought there was just such a real kind of exemplar of what the Olympics should stand for. Totally agree with you. The other one I would tell you because I watched it and they're both really good friends. Mm. They went to each other's weddings. My husband was saying. It's beautiful. If you've not seen it, make sure you look it up because the answer was so beautiful that the friend said, can't we just share it? I mean, it was just, it was just like that where you went, wow, cool idea. Um, And to your point, it's exactly what they're there for. But there's another one where it was a race. um, And one gentleman tripped the other one. Wouldn't have seen him behind him. They both fell. The one was the favorite in the race. They got up together, put their arms around one another, and finished the race walking. Um, One being very apologetic. And the other one saying, let's just finish this race. Like it's one race, even though it's the Olympics. And it was just this beautiful metaphor to your point of, I went, you know, never in other games, I won't say it never happens, but these moments seem all the sweeter at this pivotal point in history. Absolutely. And finally, what advice do you have for me and for listeners? (sighs) Um... I try to stray from advice. So that's a hard question from a, for listeners, really dial in what fulfillment means for you would be the thing I would say, because we all define that differently, but yet we compare and that's comparative being the thief of joy comparison. Um, so I would say, you know, make that a lifelong pursuit of dialing in. What does it mean to live a fulfilled life? Because in my world, fulfilled people don't hurt anyone. Mm -hmm. So if we can all just seek our own definition of what that means, it will change through your years, but it won't um, harm anyone. It will harmonize everyone. And for you, keep turning up the volume on everything you're doing because you are just a beautiful force of nature and I'm grateful to be here in your presence so please keep extending the volume to all you're doing oh thank you Sue you have no idea how much that means and um, I'm I'm gonna try my best to just breathe that in for a moment where can people find you and contact you and just kind of benefit from some of your awesomeness (laughs) <laughs> sayyes.com coming back to the beginning and that's s-a-y-y-e-s-s.com or yes y-e-s-s dot learnworlds.com either of those will find you things 
And I encourage everyone to go and take advantage of all of the brilliance um, and wonderful uh, work that Sue has done. And actually, Sue, you have a podcast as well. I think you should promote that ever so slightly whilst you're here, because I was listening to a couple of episodes before you came on. Well, I hope they were good. Um, It's called Intentional Greatness. And I would tell all of your listeners to please come listen, especially when Saida is the guest of honor, which should be shortly following this. So within the next month-ish, intentionalgreatness.com. And it's found everywhere podcasts are, you know, we don't have to call any one of them out. They're all accessible. Excellent. Thank you for all of that, Saida. Oh, you're welcome, Sue. It's been an honor and a privilege. And um, I just really uh, want to also thank you for answering your questions with such depth and richness. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.